so our scripture reading from today, if for those of you who are new, is going to be uh, right under the pastoral prayer in the bulletin. Um, and our reading comes from John 12, 20 through 50. So it says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida. Did I say that right, all our Greek scholars? Okay. In Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now it now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, elsewhere he has blinded their heart, eyes and hardened their hearts. So they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the only one, but, but in the one who sent me. The one who looked at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There's a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. 
The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that this I know that his command led to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Tori. Appreciate that. Very long passage to read. Um, for those of you who, it's been uh, a little bit since I've been up here to preach, so for those of you who have joined in the last few weeks or started coming, uh, I'm John Stevenson. Uh, my role here is Director of Discipleship. Uh, I am on, have been helping Dan here for a couple years. Uh, my goal is to eventually be a teaching elder and go through the ordination process, which means I have finished seminary. I've done, there's essentially three parts to going through the Presbyterian ordination. I did the last one at the regional Presbytery meeting, hope to do the second part in the fall, and then the third part uh, the early next year. So, who I am doesn't really matter, but that tells you at least who's up here speaking. And as I was reading through this passage, uh, a story came to my mind. It's something that I really haven't thought of much over the last decade. And many of you know I used to be uh, in medicine, and my second year we had a spine rotation at uh, Children's Hospital. Had a very, very good attending there, Richard McCarthy. He was always honest about details and small things, making us better men and or women. It was mostly men at the time in orthopedic surgery. But I remember a day we were, it was a kind of a normal day. We were seeing mostly normal scoliosis, which is about 12 to 17-year-old females. Uh, not a lot of neuromuscular stuff that day. And so we're looking at this x-ray together in the workroom. And he's like, well, tell me what you see. Well, I was a dutiful resident. I had already measured out the curves and talked to him. You know, it had progressed this much since we'd seen her in the last six months. And he stops, he's like, no, no, tell me what you see on the x-ray. And I'm like, I just did. I just told you everything that was on this x-ray. He's like, no, you've told me about this one tree in the middle of the forest. He's like, I want you to describe the forest for me. I want, I want you to paint the whole picture of what's going on. And I was like, this is, this is really weird. Okay, but okay, so I'll do it. So I started talking about, you know, like, okay, the apex of the curve is here and this is here. And he's like, no, now you're describing one bug on one leaf on one tree. He's like, I want, you, I want you to paint the clouds and the color of the sky. And I want you to, to tell me about the trees in the forest and what kind of trees they are. And the sarcastic, very cynical me wanted to be like, all right, we're on planet Earth and we're standing in the workroom in Arkansas Children's Hospital and we're looking at a computer screen together and I'm wearing the, you know. So I started trying to think of, okay, what does he want? He's like, no, he's like, I want you to tell me, tell me, who is this patient? I want you to describe the lung fields for me which as an orthopedic surgeon, you tried to never look at the lungs or anything else. I mean, you just wanted to see bone. That's all you wanted to see. So like, tell me the lung fields are clear and tell me what you see in the abdomen and all this stuff. And anyway, it made me think of this because the book of John, um, we started this in January and we've got 38 messages on this, trying to go from the first of John through the end of John. And we really kind of hit this very early on in the book of John, the second message of this series that I preach. And so I don't remember much about this year, except it snowed really hard in February and caused a lot of things. So I'm going to go back and, and, and talk about that a little bit so we get the overall picture, because we're coming to the end of one of the first sections of John. And so the book of John, we know, is different from the other three Gospels, because he looks at it in a different way. It was written later, it was about 70 AD, and so the Gospel had likely spread beyond the level of Palestine. The temple in Jerusalem may have already been destroyed. And the Jews had, had already spread out in what we called the diaspora. And 93% of the material in John is unique to the book of John. 
And so one can see John's inclusion of the world in this, and even in the passage we just read, specifically mentioning that the Greeks had come to see Jesus, a detail that's really not mentioned in the other Gospels that much. And we know, and I've repeated this multiple times, that John gives his purpose statement at the end of the book rather than at the beginning. And in John 20, 30, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs that are not written in this book in the presence of the disciples, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life through his name. And the book of John is really divided into two major sections, and most people agree on this. You have the first section, which is the book of signs, which is John 1 through 12, and then the book of passion or the book of glory, which is John 13 through John 21. And so the last chapters that we'll start next week in John 13 to the end of the book cover about one week in the period of Jesus's life. So that's far more material, far more coverage than we see in any other book. And the book, the first book, the book of signs in chapter 1 through 12 consists of seven signs. And John specifically calls these signs. And they're ones that he chose out of everything else that was going to happen that he was using to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. Most of these are followed by a discourse from Jesus and some type of I am statement. So after the feeding of the 5,000, there's a statement, I am the bread of life, and so forth, that explains why he did this. So why is all this background important? Well, John lays a foundation after the first 12 chapters that you must make a conscious choice about what you believe about Jesus Christ. Because if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you just believe that he's a wise teacher or a great prophet or some moral example, someone that we should follow after and deny the miracles, then there's not even in a point for us going to chapter 13 and on. We might as well just skip it, go on to something else, and move on to some other section of the Bible. He can't be something else or the rest of what we do here in church doesn't matter. We're left with eight chapters of a man who's tortured and died because he believed something about himself that wasn't true. He was either crazy or he was a con man to get all these people to follow him. His death, as some people would like to say, can't just be a supreme act of love by a good man, as some are, are wanting to say today. It can't be that. No, it's a misled man who suffered and died an agonizing death, and it meant nothing. And Paul writes something similar to this in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still dead in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. So if Christ didn't do what he said he did, if he didn't raise Lazarus, if he can't raise the dead, if he couldn't be resurrected himself, then your faith is worthless. And everything we're doing here on Sunday morning is worthless. We might as well go out and have brunch and sleep in and have a good time on Sunday morning because nothing of this matters if Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. So the choice is quite clear as we finish chapter 12 today. John is challenging us at the end with the words of Christ and his teaching, the last things he will say publicly, that we have to make a choice about who he is. So getting into the text which Tori read for us today, getting into the, into the one tree or the leaf on the tree, whatever Dr. McCarthy would have call it, called this. Here's the outline in advance, and it's life, love, and light. Life, love, and light. Now, that sounds like it should go on a coffee mug or a yoga t-shirt or something like that, but that's what the outline is. So first of all, I want us to look 
at life. And I want us to see that life comes from loss. Life comes from loss. In verses 20 and 26, now at this point in Christ's life, his teachings and his works had spread beyond the confines of the Jews. A new covenant was promised to the Jews, but was also said that it would be for all people, that it would reach the Gentiles as well. And so now we see the Greeks coming, wanting to see Jesus, coming to worship him. We're not really told anything about them, or even if Jesus granted their request to see them, because at this point it really doesn't matter. But that request of the Greeks to come and to see Jesus triggered the statement that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you think all the way back in chapter 2 in the wedding at Cana, one of the things that Jesus said to his mother is, his hour had not yet come. And all throughout the book of John, we hear the statement that his hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And the disciples didn't really ever get or grasp what was going on, that his hour had not yet come. The suffering and agony that he had, and ultimately his victory and his, his glorious resurrection would happen. And Christ gives an example that, that people would understand today, and those of you that like to, to farm or plant things would understand, that to bring forth something greater, a seed would need to be buried into the earth to bring forth whatever that seed is capable of bringing forth. That seed on its own is worthless. It doesn't do anything except sit there, maybe sit in a jar, and we look at it and say, those are some seeds, and they sit in a little packet. But for that seed to be worth anything, that seed has to be buried and die to bring forth what it is supposed to be. And Christ makes this applicable to the audience at the time, and it's the same thing that's applicable to us today, that an abundance of life comes from dying to ourselves and honoring the Father. And that consists of serving him, <coughs> excuse me, and following him. And that's what, what's true about this, is we cannot have it both ways. We cannot have the way of the world and the way of Christ. Even though we often try, we can't have it both ways. It's impossible. If we love our life, it's actually a self-defeating, harmful process. Because loving our life destroys exactly what we're trying to preserve. So loving our life is harmful ultimately in the end. Whenever we place our priority, our joy, our pleasure, our fulfillment, or our satisfaction in something other than Christ, those things ultimately lead to our detriment and to our eventual death. It's not only a meaningless life here and now, but it is for all of eternity. But hating, which is used as the antithesis of love here, which carries the idea of, of choosing one or the other, disfavor or disregard, doesn't mean that we have to need to live a life of solitude, that we should all become hermits and go out and live in the desert somewhere and separate ourselves from the world. It doesn't mean that we can't find happiness and pleasure in things in this life as long as we recognize the one to, from whom we've received those things, the one who's the giver of all good gifts and things for us to richly enjoy here on the earth that he's made. But where is the primary longing for those things? Is it in the things themselves? It is, in, is it in the joy from the thing itself? Or is it from the creator and the maker of all good things? And this is the first step in believing that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Of losing your life to self and choosing life through Jesus Christ. So where is your life today? The way of following Christ is one of joy and peace, but we know that it will be full of hardship and for some, 
even suffering through things that they don't want to go through. But an active belief in the Son of God, of who he is and what he's done for us, involves being with Christ. As John puts there from the words of Christ, following him, serving him, and will receive the reward of the eternal honor of the Father. And that's something far superior than anything in the here and now that this world can offer. So evaluate your life. Because your best life comes not from seeking to save your life or seeking to do something to add any type of comfort or confirmation to your life. But it comes from losing your life to something and to someone far greater than yourself. Life comes from loss. Second thing I want us to look at is love. And that's love can be misdirected. Love can be misdirected. So as we go through the passage, we move on and we get a glimpse of the agony of Christ. Or we start to see the divine and the human natures coming together in a way that we see further in Gethsemane and as he's on the cross. And he states, my soul is troubled. He doesn't pray to be saved from, from this hour. What he knows is coming. What he knows was his purpose of coming to this earth. To suffer and die and rise again victoriously, defeating sin and death for us. He prays for the Father to be glorified in his life. And the Father answers in quite a mighty way. He says through a voice from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And it kind of reminisces back to the transfiguration or even the baptism of Christ. Where we hear this voice, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So just as that voice came from heaven, God promises that everything that Christ is about to go through will be glorified. Now, the crowd standing around hears this, and they don't quite understand what this means. They should be looking through an event through which Yahweh would show his power and his glory. But his glory is shown in a way that no one would expect. Something that looks like defeat. With this man who's standing here, who's, who's taught, who's gathered all these followers and turned the religious world of Jerusalem on the upside on its head, is one who's going to die. And how does that look like the Father glorifying? Christ talks about being lifted up again, and John ends the parathetical notation that this signifies the type of death that he's going to die. Now, we've got the same conundrum in verse 37 that many of us face today, where this phrase he says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe them. Now, what's interesting in that phrase, so many in verse 37, is the Greek word tosada, and if you look in BDAG, and anyone who's ever taken anything close to being around seminary or in a Bible college, knows that that is the father, mother, king, and queen of all of English and Greek lexicon of what things meant during that time. And it carries an idea not of only the number, meaning so many, but the quality of the miracles that were done. Meaning that John shows what he thought were quality miracles and the number of seven that would show that Jesus Christ is the Son of God through the things that he had done. However, John recalls back to a prophecy in Isaiah of the unbelief of the people. And this was a prophecy that echoed what had happened throughout the entire span of Israel's existence, of God's chosen people. God sent prophets, messengers, curse, time in exile, because they would not believe in God. Yet God in his eternal and sovereign plan does not let the unbelief and actions of men thwart what his plan will be. In fact, it is only God, through his spirit, in ways in which we can't begin to understand, that is able to open the minds and hearts of people to see what the truth is. 
Now, I know this, I said this point was about love, and I haven't mentioned anything about love yet. But look at verses 42 and 43. It says, many believed in him, but out of fear, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now, that was an interesting thought for me. Was this true belief? Was this false belief? Was it kind of shaky belief? What was that? And the commentaries and articles I looked at this mostly came to the consensus that the way this is constructed and the way in which John uses these words, that this was probably a true belief, a belief similar to that of like Joseph of Arimathea, who helped with the baptism, or Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, that this probably was a true belief amongst those in the Sanhedrin and other ruling classes of society. But they were scared because they loved the glory that came from God. Their overall allegiances to Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, remained hidden, and their courage was completely misplaced. And I think this is where a lot of us sit today in looking at this passage. And this is probably where it's most applicable. And I am so guilty of this. So I'm going to preach this to myself a little bit right now. And that we're not so certain how our family, our friends, our coworkers, the people we hang out with, will react to us. We're scared of being one of those Jesus freaks, one of those people who's always talking about the Bible and, you know, we're going to try to hide it a little bit. And let's be honest, it's, it's not cool to be a Christian anymore. I spent some time in Philadelphia, and no one claims to be a cultural Christian. There still exists a little bit in Arkansas, but it's slowly fading a bit. Everyone used to be a Christian of some kind in America, but not so much anymore as society and what society values and things change. We're intolerant, we're, we, we're unlikable, we're against cert, certain things. And we can hide behind rules at, at, at work and non-proselytizing policies. And I worked at a secular university system, and man, they're strict on that. And you have to follow those rules because that's where you work. Where you work. But the evidences of being a Christian, the fruits of the Spirit, and go, don't go against any common courtesy in this life, and don't go against any corporate policy. So living out what the Spirit has placed in your life doesn't go against anything that you can or can't do with your friends or others. And I'm not saying let's start a revolution of any kind, but how about we just start with how we as individuals live in this world? Do we reflect our love for Christ based on his love for us first, or do we reflect our love of self and our love for this world? So love can be misdirected. And third, light casts out darkness. Light casts out darkness. In verses 44 through 50, we have the final words of Jesus' public ministry. We see that Jesus cried out, indicating a sense of urgency and importance to what he's going to say here. The inseparable nature of, of the Father and Son is emphasized that to believe in Christ, you believe in God the Father. To see Christ is to see the Father. We know that since the fall in the garden with Adam and Eve, that this world, things are not as they're supposed to be. They're not what God created things to be. One day, all things will be made right, but right now, we're not living in a world where there's sickness and death and there's suffering, and this is not what God intended for us to have. Without the revelation of God and the Son of God, we would all be in complete, utter spiritual darkness. We would be dead in our sins and not even know it because we wouldn't be able to see that there's something different. In physical terms, darkness is not a material thing. It can't be measured. It can't be quantified because darkness isn't a physical thing. It's just the absence 
of light. Light is the physical entity that comes into the darkness. And so when we measure how dark something is, we're measuring how little light is actually there. Christ came into this world as light to break into the spiritual darkness that existed. And so as I read this whole bookend section, as we come through the end of chapter 12 in this book of signs, it made me want to look back at the parallels of John 1 and what John wrote in his prologue as he started. And bear with me as I, as I read some of these verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. The Word was with God in the beginning. All things were created by Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines on in the darkness, because the darkness has not mastered it. The true light who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created by him, but the world did not recognize him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who have received him, those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. Now the word became flesh and took up residence among us. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, who came from the Father. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, one with the Father, came out to drive out the darkness of sin. And it takes light, the light that comes from Christ, to show us our need of salvation and the darkness in which we truly live in. It takes a light to show us our Savior, who is the pure and true light. Jesus came to bring us out of the darkness of our sin and into the light by believing in him through the words, works, and signs that he performed to show us that he is indeed the Son of God. This is not just an intellectual tip of the hat to statement Jesus to say, yep, good guy, prophet, someone, let's patter our lives after Jesus, and we'd all be a little bit better if we lived like that Jesus guy. What you believe about Jesus Christ and what you do with that belief is just as true 2,000 years later as when those words were stated. We don't like to talk about judgment in the church much anymore, and maybe we overemphasize it for a time, but I think we need to kind of course correct back and talk about judgment a little bit, because there is a judgment coming. Christ states in verse 48 that his words and works stand as the judge against the person on that day. Christ says that he's not the judge, and he didn't come to judge anyone, but what he did will stand as the judge against that person. And if you're in the defense box and looking at everything that Christ did, what he said, if you take the book of John and the seven signs of what he did and what he taught, that is what's the prosecution against you of what did you believe about Jesus Christ and him being the son of God. Christ speaks on behalf of the father and the father offers through his life, his death, burial, and resurrection, eternal life through Jesus Christ. And it's only received by grace through faith. Jesus, John starts with Jesus Christ being the absolute son of God, one with the Father and the one who was sent to be the light of the world, the light that shines through the darkness and that the darkness can never shut out. Through Christ, we see the glory of God and through Christ, we have access to the Father, not because of anything that we have done, but only through the work of Christ, the one full of grace and truth. So the question of what do we do with Jesus Christ remains the same as it has every week as we've gone through the first 12 chapters. What will you do 
and what will you believe about Jesus Christ? If you have yet to believe that you're in darkness and that Jesus Christ has come to be the light to save you from your sins, repent and believe the Son of God. Believe what he said and what he did, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. For most of us here, if you're holding on to your life and value your life, let it go and receive a more abundant life through Jesus Christ. If you find yourself loving the world, give up a love that will never love you back and find love in the one who suffered and died for you. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life through his name. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for Jesus Christ who is the exact image of you, the one that you sent to demonstrate your love, to bring light into the world, the way he did so through so many signs and miracles, proving his divinity, proving that he was the one who could save us from our sins and bring us back into fellowship with the Father, the one that could take everything that is wrong with the world and make everything right once again. I pray that we would lose our lives from following after ourselves and that we would follow Jesus Christ in the way in which we should. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.